Recorded live. This is an interactive, interactive. interactive podcast designed for audience participation. Come talk, talk, talk. text chat, or listen live at TalkShoe.com. Good day, wherever you are listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is my co-host, Cliff Slotnick. Morning, Joe. And our technical assistant, cyber jockey, C.J. Zach Slotnick. Hey, Joe. This week, we would like to thank our uh, spotlight sponsor for the week is Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dryease.com. That's D-R-I dash E-A-Z dot com. And we'd also like to thank our original and continuing sponsor, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com, just like it sounds, ieconnections.com. And today's guests will be Sean Regan of PDG Environmental, and Brandon Burton of Dry Ease Products. But before we get to guest number one, we have to quickly tell folks how to contact us if you haven't joined the show in the past. We are live every Friday at noon, and you can uh, have an email reminder sent to you if you'd like by sending me an email at info at iaqtraining.com. We also now have a direct link to our TalkShoe uh, homepage here at the iaqtraining.com website. You can call in live by going to www.talkshoe.com, sign up, get your 10-digit PIN number. We suggest a phone number that's easy to remember, so for those of you lucky enough to still have a mother out there to call, use your mother's phone number and call her after the show. Then you will dial 724-444-7444. You'll put in the show's PIN number, which is 1547, and then use your 10-digit PIN number. You can also sign up to email us questions or text message us questions online once again, through the TalkShoe.com website. Okay, Cliff, today we're going to move over to the microband trivia question brought to us by Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. I'm going to turn it over to Cliff Zlotnick now. Thanks, Joe. It's exciting to announce uh, two winners of prizes for answering two microband trivia questions. Uh, those of you that are new to the program, remember to listen to past shows and answer the unanswered vintage trivia questions. Uh, the, these vintage trivia questions become more valuable the longer they remain unanswered. So the prizes get bigger? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. All right. Congratulations go out to David Bailey of Williamstown, West Virginia, for answering this question. Why don't spiders get caught in their own webs? The correct answer was because they have self-oiling legs. Congratulations also go out to Chad Seams of Iowa City, Iowa, for answering this question. What level of radon is safe in an occupied indoor environment? The correct answer was zero or none. The more the levels of radon are reduced, 
the more health concerns associated with radon are also reduced. This week's microband trivia question again comes from the fascinating science of entomology. This insect is born pregnant without the benefit of sex. This insect can give birth 10 days after being born themselves. Name that insect. Back to you, Joe. Excellent. Thank you, Cliff. Our first guest today is Mr. Sean Regan. Sean, do we have you on the line here? We have him muted. Just a moment. There we go. Sean is too, correct. Sean, do you, are you there? Yes, I am. Excellent. Mr. Sean Regan, good friend of ours and Director of Business Development for PDG Environmental. PDG has been a leader in the environmental industry since 1984, and they are currently ranked as the second largest asbestos abatement contractor by Engineering News Record. They have a nationwide network of 17 offices and three operating subsidiaries. PDG is also a leading provider of mold remediation and now disaster restoration services nationwide with over 10,000 projects. Mr. Regan has spoken at numerous mold seminars and conferences nationwide. He's had a great deal of hands-on experience with mold remediation projects and prior to that asbestos, lead abatement. In the last few years, he has managed the mobilization of over 800 employees, equipment, and materials to Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas in response to the hurricanes that devastated those areas. PDG has performed emergency mitigation services at over 200 locations now. Welcome, Sean. I hope I got that all right. I believe you did. All right. Excellent. Great to have you here, Sean. Uh, we, uh, Cliff and I are a little bit very familiar with your background, but a lot of our listeners aren't. So why don't we start out with uh, talking a little bit about your asbestos group and what what's the you know what's the hazard that we're dealing with when we talk about asbestos abatement? Um, well, as as you said, we we our primary business or where we came from is on the asbestos side, uh, asbestos abatement side of the the industry, um, and 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 really what 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 brought that business about initially was was the health hazards that that are clearly associated with exposure to asbestos, and uh, I guess the the biggest thing is is that asbestos in, in in good shape, intact in buildings is not necessarily a hazard. It's when uh, asbestos is is going to be disturbed when it's you know whether a building is going to be renovated or it's been disturbed by uh, you know accidentally by maintenance personnel or uh, or by a, a disaster of some sort of some kind of a sudden and accidental event and uh, and and where it becomes a health risk is when it's inhaled and uh, asbestos is is such that the fibers that are in asbestos or are uh, that is what asbestos is is a fiber is they're so small that they get into the lungs and the human body can't expel the the, the fibers and they where they get into the uh, what is it the alveoli and scar the lungs and eventually create a, a uh, cancer We've got a few diseases actually. Yeah, yeah. Mesothelioma. 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 Uh, this is the one in the you know latency period of, of mesothelioma. You know, you may not even see signs of it for 20 years. Oh, is it true? And I, I guess this goes to you or to Dieter. Is it true that mesothelioma only comes from asbestos exposure? 
That is correct. Am I, am I correct, Dieter? Dr. Wow, are you on the line? We need our technical director in here for a moment. Oh, I thought I heard him there. Hello? There he is. Okay. Yeah. Dieter, have we found anything else besides asbestos that causes that devastating mesothelioma? Oh, sure. Oh, okay. Oh, what sure. I mean, the, you know, scarring of the lung. No, no, no. That wasn't the question. The question was, is yeah. is it or is it not true that mesothelioma is only caused by asbestos exposure? At, no, the, the jury is still out on okay. that. Apparently, there are cases, and in fact, quite a few, uh, where there is no known asbestos exposure and the poor patient uh, got uh, mesothelioma. That's good. So now we'll clarify that myth because I think that's a myth that's pretty pervasive within the industry. Sure. Sean, what's hazardous about lead, and where do we find lead? Um, well, I mean, the biggest, the, the biggest, you know, place we see lead is in lead-based paint, and and again, it's it's the exposure to the to the particles, the dust, the fumes uh, that that are contained within lead that that creates an issue, and and it's when it's swallowed or when it's uh, you're eating potentially food that that has come in contact with with lead-based dust or uh, even smoking. Uh, when you if you if you touch lead, you have it on your fingers. You're smoking a cigarette. You're inhaling it also, and uh, you know high levels of it can can in some cases uh, be fatal. Uh, a lot of a lot of the things that do pop up from continued exposure to, to high levels of lead is is kidney damage, brain damage, uh, anemia. Um, it, it certainly stunts uh, cognitive growth within children as well. And that is uh, an issue we, we don't have this lengthy latency period no, associated with. No, it's immediate, sure. And so, have you? I'm, I'm curious, Sean. Uh, Business-wise, how are things with respect to asbestos and lead? I hear different stories. Some people tell me asbestos is, you know, slowing down and lead's actually picking up. Uh, how do you see things? Being the nationwide, you know, director of uh, operations there at uh, PDG, the, the the asbestos side of our business is, is, believe it or not, continued to grow every year. I mean, we. Our, our business overall has 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 grown by leaps and bounds in the last three or four years, but the asbestos abatement uh, piece of it has is continued to grow. Um, we're we're, we're at running at a higher revenue rate this year than we were last year and the prior year, and 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 is it one particular? Uh, it always just seems like California is really busy this uh, right now and. We're getting a lot of bid act activity in, in in the Northeast. I mean, it just it, it really seems to roll around. I guess that's that, that's one of the advantages of having the, the spread of offices throughout the country is when a few of them are slow, the other ones are busy. And you mentioned bid. Uh, does that mean that most of the jobs that your company does in asbestos or lead abatement have multiple bidders vying for the same project? Yeah, Cliff. I mean, that, that business... Um, is is a bid business, typically a hard number lump sum contract business. Uh, you have you have the institute or the public sector, which is anybody that can get uh, pu that can get bonding and can payroll a project can bid a job. Whoever is the low bid typically gets it. And then you have the private sector where 
they're a little more selective on who they're who they're using. Um, it could they could you know let's use a, a commercial property owner like uh, J.C. Penney's. Right. They may pre-qualify a few contractors, check out their insurance, bonding capabilities, track record, how long they've been in business. May pick you know three or four of them and and, and then also again. Uh, bid the work out, but it's a it's a much smaller list that you're that you're competing against. Insurance is a big factor, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, they they it's expensive, and uh, it's they they really look at your, the insurance companies really look at the the, the uh, practices that you have in place, and and you know the, the difference with with asbestos and 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 mold remediation when it comes to getting coverage for asbestos is you show the insurance company we're doing work within the regulations of asbestos abatement. Mold remediation years ago it was, um, you know, these are our standard practices. We'll, we'll, we'll use uh, some of the items that are from the, the New York City guidelines, the EPA guidelines, and uh, they look at that. And that, that's actually gotten to the point where, um, where, where asbestos is almost now. With respect to better or more defined techniques, I guess my question is, are any of the techniques that you use on asbestos and lead abatement similar or suitable for use on mold remediation? And, and what's different uh, when you do mold remediation versus an asbestos abatement project? Well, the, the, the basic, I mean, that's, that's a great question. The, the, the basic, the, the, the basic, uh, protocols that you use for asbestos abatement, lead abatement, are, are similar to mold remediation in that you are containing a, a potential contaminant. And, you know, so your engineering controls Yeah, your engineering similar. controls. You're containing it to a certain part of the building so that you're, you're not affecting, in mold, you're not affecting uncontaminated parts of the building in asbestos abatement, lead abatement. Whatever you are disturbing is staying within those, those controlled environments. So, those so they, there is certainly a similarity there. Okay. And, and, then, and then once you get into um, the, the, the practice of actually removing the asbestos or you know obviously you're 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 introducing water into uh, an asbestos abatement project and you're not really going to use a lot of water on a mold remediation project well some of our listeners may not realize that you are required to use water with a surfactant on these asbestos abatement projects is that that Still is, accurate? Yeah, oh, yes, yes. Must is. be adequately wet, as yes. I recall. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, what are you seeing with respect to during mold remediation? Because there's still some, we've had guests on the show that feel that we should use misting as a an engineering control during mold remediation, but we have standards that say we shouldn't. What are you running into? It, it's it's really a, a mix. I mean, it, it you, you're not, you're, you're not, Using water like you are in an asbestos abatement project, and in some cases, yeah, you may use it for for some dust control within within the bags, or you're 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 still drying the environment in in a, in a mold remediation project. You're not you're not soaking it in, in uh, I guess creating a humid environment in there. So do do we have uh, you know, do we stand on? Oh no, it has to be completely dry, and we we will not bring water, or we do? I mean, it's it, there's not a line drawn in the sand, I guess. Mm -hmm. Now, 
I'm I'm curious on the uh, when you're doing the asbestos abatement. I guess one of the other things that is quite different from mold remediation. Once you remove the asbestos, it doesn't come back. Right. But the mold, on the other hand, I guess, um, do you have you had situations where you've finished the mold remediation project and a client calls and says, "Hey, our mold's coming back," and uh, what what happened? What went wrong? Well, fortunately, Joe, we, we, we haven't had that, that experience. But, you know, any time that you leave a project or leave a property, it's up to that building owner to make sure that it doesn't get wet again. And, and, and no matter what we do in our uh, project, what, no matter what happens, if, if, that, if that underlying water intrusion uh, hasn't been fixed, then, then whatever we did isn't, isn't, gonna, isn't really going to be worth it. So sure. do you make sure that the owners are aware of that in some way? Do you get it in writing? Sure. You, okay. Okay, great. Sean, you know, you're in a variety of different businesses, and it seems that some of these businesses, such as lead abatement, asbestos abatement, have government regulations, and mold abatement and fire and water restoration would not. What is the effect of federal regulations on your business? Well, the, the, the asbestos abatement is, is completely driven by the, the regulations. I mean, the, the business itself is certainly tied to the economy. Uh, you know, when, when the economy is doing well and people are building buildings or tearing down buildings or renovating buildings, that's the business side of it. it people are doing the work, but it, it's when it comes time to do the work, then it's, it's completely uh, regulate, regulatory driven in that you can't tear down a building until the asbestos has been removed. You can't renovate an area of a building until the asbestos has been removed and removed within the regulations of that state and EPA. We have a text question from WR in Wheeling, West Virginia, and his text question is, is would you prefer to operate in an environment that is government regulated, such as lead and asbestos abatement, or do you prefer the free enterprise system that happens in disaster restoration? There's 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 good parts and bad parts to to, to you know having to work within uh, a, a regulated environment and that you're not persuading an owner that this is what needs to be done to protect yourself it's it's the law and that's what it is uh, when it comes to mold remediation in some cases uh, you're dealing with an owner sometimes that may not be interested in the the potential liabilities of doing the project improperly so. It's it's a, it's a, it's a different kind of business. It's the the regulated side of, side of the business is is difficult. It's 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 uh, um, with respect to how the work has to be done and what the things that you need to worry about um, about keeping yourself in line and keeping up to date. I mean, it's part of the law, and and that's that's sometimes uh, it's tough. But that's that's the business that we chose. And, and on the other side, though, on the mold remediation piece of it, there is that underlying liability that's associated with it all the time, whether you're the building owner or the contractor. Now, as, as a training provider, I'm, I'm curious, um, with asbestos abatement, I'm, I'm familiar with the fact that you have specific requirements that you train your workers in a certain way and that they be licensed. <coughs> Excuse me. As with respect to training people for mold remediation and or water damage restoration, how do you handle 
that issue? How do you train your workers? Do you do it internally, externally? Do you train a few of them and then have them supervise? Is it on-the-job training? It, it's it's all of those things. I mean, you know, coming from the business that we came from or that we're, we're coming from, we certainly understand the importance of training and uh, the importance of the, the again, the liability associated with putting untrained personnel in, in situations that, that requires training. And, and it can be everything from uh, Joe and, and Cliff. We've sent lots of people through your uh, both of your training uh, academies. Uh, I've gone through them. I mean, we're, we're, we're very uh, always looking to uh, get, get the best training out there and have, make sure that our people um, have, have the... Uh, you know the knowledge and, and and are up to date on the latest latest techniques, and then you have uh, in-house hazardous hazcom training, and uh, it, it really we have our we have an our in-house uh, safety program that that's actually provided on the internet that and each worker and 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 supervisor and project manager all have different levels of training that they need to uh, perform every year, so. We've got a, a quick tech. We're running a little behind on time, but this has been very interesting, and I have a quick text message. Um, what would be a, a word of advice, or maybe I don't know if we'd want to go with trade secret. They asked trade secret here, but uh, that you would give smaller firms that are trying to compete with a big company like yours in this, you know, both the regulated end of things and the non-regulated end of things with the mold remediation. Is there any? advice you'd give smaller companies you know we we've we've been in business for for 22 years and, and we've over the course of the 22 years we've acquired i think a dozen companies and we've looked at uh you know we've looked at acquiring you know maybe 30 or 40 companies and, and the companies that always they're always small guys they're always smaller than us but the ones that that always seem to stick out to me are I mean we, we provide everything I mean, our company does does a little bit of everything um, those companies that that have a special special niche that that get a client keep a client those are the ones that are all, always seem to be wow how do they do it I mean those are you know you look at at, at one of the uh, most recent acquisition of ours the, the flagship acquisition last year they operated in a uh, in, in, a, in a very small piece, big piece, I guess, they, they, they specialized in, in, in the commercial reconstruction after fires and floods and after only the reconstruction. That's what they specialized in. Where are they located? They're located in Arlington, Texas. Okay. They work all over the country specializing in uh, commercial reconstruction. They didn't do any... Uh, from time to time, they would do some mitigation, but a lot of time it was uh, subcontracted out to the local mitigation contractor that they know. And uh, that—that that is, th those companies that that get a good client base because it's a service business. It's not like we come in and if we're, if, it's not like you, you're, the businesses that we're in the contracting. It's you look at the kind of clients that you have and the kind of business that they're in and the mix of clients and how long they've kept those clients those are those are the most important pieces when we're evaluating companies and and the the level I mean, some of 
some of the companies that we acquired, they were in our business, but we never competed against them because hmm. they, they had a niche of customers that they kept happy. Hey, Sean, got a question for you. This might be a little embarrassing, but what was the biggest or most costly mistake that your company ever made? Oh, Cliff, nice one. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> we've had we've had lots of them. <laughs> well, so has everyone else. That's why I asked. Yeah, and you know the, the the certainly on the asbestos abatement side of the business, where it's it's lump sum, and you, you bid a number, you bid a hundred grand, and you're stuck with that number. Um, where we have always, it seems like it's it's never like we underestimated the amount of disposal or mm-hmm. we underestimated it's always been in uh productivity and mm-hmm. and some of the some of the jobs we may have taken maybe outside of our geographic area that we've worked with before and maybe it's a it's a it's a labor uh, source of labor that we're not used to working with and, and mm-hmm. you know our business is extremely labor intensive um so you know I'd like to say that every every mistake we learn something from, but it seems like we continue. <laughs> and we still make them. Right, we yeah. We still absolutely. make them, and, and, but we're not making the same mistakes too many times. Right. Uh, but certainly in, in the asbestos abatement business, it, it is it always seems to come down to uh, what we bid and, uh, you know, our understanding of the project and the productivity we were going to get. Sometimes you don't get that productivity well we're we're running a little short but we have three questions we always like to finish with here, oh, okay. Sean and the first one is what advice would you give consumers who would be listening to this broadcast who are looking at having either asbestos abatement lead abatement mold remediation whichever you choose what what's the best piece of advice you can give to our consumers out there I, I think with you know any uh any time you're going to do business with with anybody for, in your home, check them out. I mean, uh, get references, find out you know previous projects, how long they've been in business, the basics. I mean, it's insurance. just do a little. Yeah, I mean, check the insurance. I mean, just a little bit of research. That's that's really uh, sometimes all all it all it takes. I guess one thing that people don't oftentimes realize is that general liability insurance doesn't cover this type of work you you have to get specialty insurance is my understanding that is correct and that can be very expensive and that is also correct okay and homeowners insurance isn't going to cover the remediation either it's going to be excluded so uh, that can be a challenge as well correct yep, yep. okay what wow. about uh, is there anything that we missed that you would like to add sean i know we've gone through quite a few yeah, things no but i think uh i think uh I think we've covered everything. Well, one of the other things we always like to finish with, and I know in, in your case in particular, I'm, I'm sure that people, uh, you'd like people to know that PDG is a publicly traded company, isn't is yes. that correct? Yes, it is. How would people or listeners that were interested in either contacting you or finding out more about PDG Environmental get that information? Uh, our website is uh, www.pdge.com. P D G E. Okay, Paul David Gorilla Enterprise dot com. Yes. All right. And uh, my contact information is on there. Uh, all of it, cell phone, office, email, everything. So. And they can find out about the stock and everything sure. all on there. Yep. Yep. Wonderful. That's yep. that's excellent. When we really appreciate having you on, Sean, and 
hopefully we'll we'll get you back. We've got another page of questions we didn't get to here, but great. we we do have to move on. So that's that's uh, great. I'd be uh, certainly interested. Like I said, Joe, my uh, you had you had talked about uh, people calling their mother earlier, and my I, I seem to remember my mother telling me that I had a face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, you know, I think Cliff and I are in that same category. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> thanks for joining. All right, John. thanks, guys. All Thank right, you. we'll See talk you. to you soon. Okay, before we move on to guest number two, uh, during the break, we like to remind people here that the IAQ radio program is approved for console, American Indoor Air Quality console renewal credits, and you can get more information about those renewal credits for renewing your certifications um, from info at iaqtraining.com if you want to email us, or you can go to the iaqtraining.com website, and uh, we have contact information on there as well. We also want to make sure that we thank our sponsors again, the uh, folks from Dry Ease Products, which we will be coming up uh, with one of their technical people here next, uh, the people who provide equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings, Dry Ease is first in drying solutions, and of course our original and continuing sponsors, IE Connections, the Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. And I, I have to throw a little something in here. If you are in the indoor environmental quality industry and you are not getting a copy of IE Connections, you're making a mistake. Um, it is a tremendous source of information, one of the first things I read every month, and it really keeps you up to date. So that it's like was the a, Wall Street Journal for yeah, the Wall indoor Street, environmental you go, industry. You know, right? So that was a, that's a free plug for Mr. Fellman and IE Connections because I, I really do believe in them. But uh, right now what we'd like to do is bring in our second guest for, the t for today's program, Brandon Burton. Brandon, are you out there? Uh, yes, I am. Good well, morning. Welcome. Good afternoon, actually. Uh, yeah, well, actually, we're worldwide, Brandon, so we just say good day. That's good day. Uh, we have people listening, actually, and we've had people email us from Australia and England, uh, England other places around the world, so it's great. Brandon is the technical education manager for Dry Ease. He is also an approved IICRC instructor in the categories of applied structural drying water damage restoration. He has invested hundreds of hours instructing water damage restoration professionals in the principles of drying. He is also a published author in the field, has served as a chapter chair and editor for the IICRC's S-500 Standard Committee, and he's also a member of the ASCR Restoration Council. And I always get this uh, ringing in the back of my head from one of my excellent students that say, you use too many acronyms, Joe. IICRC is the Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, and ASCR is the Association of Specialists in Cleaning and Restoration. Brandon has been with Dry Ease since 1995, working in the areas of technical service, product development, research, manufacturing, and sales, and during his tenure with Dryes, has participated in numerous large restoration projects, assisting contractors across the United States. 
He's also a speaker through Toastmasters International, and we're really looking forward to having you here. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Hey, Brandon. Thank you very much. I guess, do you have a dehumidifier in your own home? <laughs> Actually, yes, I do. Okay, I just didn't want to talk to any guest that didn't believe in his own product. What, <laughs> what's the word dehumidify mean? Well, you know, a lot of people misinterpret the term dehumidify. Now, if you look at it from the textbook standpoint, dehumidify means to reduce the air's moisture content. And there's really lots of ways to tackle that definition. You know, whether you do it mechanically by physically removing water from an airstream and returning that same airstream or simply grabbing a separate air mass that has, you know, less moisture in it. It can actually mean a couple of different things. Well, hang on a second there, Brandon. We're on the radio here. Let me... Let me go back for one one moment. We kind of have to visualize this. Uh, could you go back over there for just give me a little more of a visual on what we're talking about? Absolutely. You know, all all air that we deal with naturally is it's going to have some moisture in it. Okay. You know, it's an important component of air. And when we say dehumidify, if you just kind of break that word down, basically we're talking about taking humidity and making it less. And there. Are are a couple of ways to make that happen. You know, you can take air and use a refrigerant dehumidifier, a desiccant dehumidifier. You can use a system that literally pulls moisture out of that air. That would be dehumidify in probably its simplest sense. But you can also simply grab air from somewhere else that is less humid, that's drier, and replace air that's more humid. That's another form of dehumidification. Similar to what happened here in uh, two years back, I believe it was, we had some really bad flooding, and after that there had, there was very low humidity for the next two weeks, fortunately for the people who were dried. I guess opening the windows and running some fans and bringing that nice dry air into that wet environment was probably a good idea. It's a better idea than not doing that, absolutely. <laughs> okay, great. Cliff? Uh, Brandon, what's special about the dehumidifiers that are used by structural drying professionals compared to you know, the dehumidifiers that they could buy at a, on the retail level? Well, there's, there's a few things there, Cliff. The, the first and most important is something that our industry has had to learn over the last 25, 30 years is that dehumidifiers come in all kinds of shapes and sizes and for lots of different applications. And the standard homeowner is going to purchase something that's designed to you know, control a space like a basement or a cellar area where you really don't have a massive amount of moisture present. You just have you know, a little bit of uh, kind of that cool, damp environment and very, very little water in the air, just some water in the air. So they're not really designed for you know, a high capacity. They're also designed kind of like your refrigerator. Now, they're designed for you to stick it in a corner somewhere, plug it in, and let it run. They're not designed for you to throw it in the back of a truck, uh, you know, take a trip down the interstate, you know, a few speed bumps and potholes later, haul it out of the back of your truck and, and bump it up a flight of stairs and repeat that process every week for several years. They're just not designed for that. They don't have the ability to protect all their internal components. And uh, you know anybody who's <laughs> who's ever used our product, regardless of how much you care for it, you know stuff happens. And dehumidifiers, 
we've had dehumidifiers fall out of the back of, of vehicles because somebody forgot to latch the back door. And they need to be able to survive that kind of abuse and really be portable and be maneuverable. At the same time, they've got to have the capacity. You know, when you're drying a structure that has had an abnormal water intrusion, water's come in because a, a pipe is broken, a river is flooded, you're talking about a massive amount of water, hundreds and hundreds of times the amount of moisture than, that you would be dealing with in just a, a basement or a cellar environment that was a little damp. So you have to have the capacity to keep up. You know, the whole goal there is to get the humidity in check and in control rapidly, kind of like an ER room and trying to stabilize a patient. You've got to do it quickly. Now, my understanding is that, you know, one of the first things you do is get rid of as much of the liquid water as possible, and there's numerous ways you can do that. But there's also some role in promoting air movement during structural drying. Can you explain how that assists in the process, or am I off base on that, Brandon? Not off base at all. You know, what's interesting there is that the air mover is the simplest piece of equipment that a drying contractor will use, but at the same time, it's the most misunderstood. You know, a lot of people think that by blowing air at a wet surface, you're going to dry that wet surface, and that's not necessarily true. An air mover uh, is kind of an interesting conflict in what a lot of us believe. An air mover doesn't dry anything. It really doesn't. Uh, the, the air mover plays two critical roles in the drying effort. First of all, you need the, the air that can dry the surface, that's warm enough, that's dry enough. You need that air to be where the water is. And the air movement is a vehicle, a transport mechanism, if you will, to vehicle to put that air there. So that's one real critical role that it plays. The second role is very similar. When you have a wet surface, water is evaporating. You know, it's trying to come up into the air mass around it, there the air around it. And as it does that, an air mover sweeps that evaporating moisture away. So it becomes kind of like the blender in the environment, taking the humid air at the surface and getting it up and taking the dry air that's around you and putting it at the surface. It's a vehicle. Probably the best way to describe that. How can a client be assured that the drying equipment used by a restoration contractor is performing as claimed? That's a very interesting question, Cliff. There's, you know, the unfortunate circumstance, and I can speak well to this because I, you know, I work for a manufacturer, the unfortunate circumstance that, that can happen is, you know, when you try to figure out how big a dehumidifier is or how, how effective an air mover is, you need specifications, right? You need numbers that say something to you about what the actual piece of equipment delivers. And, you know, there's, there's an, a lot of different ways to get those numbers. You know, if you wanted to figure out... I guess you could make them up. <laughs> yeah, you, you could. That's one way you could do it. Uh, and unfortunately, not, not by too far of a stretch from that statement, you know, that, that can happen very easily. Because when you're thinking about a, uh, a dehumid... Well, let's just use cars as an example. Okay? If I were to purchase an automobile and I was worried about gas mileage, and, and the efficiency that car is going to have in consuming fuel, you know, a manufacturer could say that this vehicle gets 40 miles to the gallon. Right. Okay. Uh, if that's all I have, I have no idea really how they figure that out. You know, was that going downhill with the wind behind you at 65 <laughs> miles an hour? Or, you know, is that in town driving? I mean, what, what example, what, what criteria did you set out when you, when you published this rating? 
Well, with a dehumidifier, an air mover, uh, and even things like you know filtration systems for like HEPA filters, all these things, unfortunately, unless you really get specific about how the testing was done, those specifications are almost irrelevant. So there are some ways that the consumer can find out whether or not those specifications are real. And there's a couple of real specific examples, and I would very highly urge any consumer, and for that matter, any insurer or anybody else who's interested in the effectiveness of the restoration work to check these two things out. One, make sure that the piece of equipment is UL listed or ETL or something similar, where you've got a third-party uh, a professional organization that does testing that is looking at that piece of equipment and making sure things like amp draw, for example, are accurate. You know, if you've got a UL listing on that serial tag, you know the amp draw on that piece of equipment is not something that the manufacturer, you know, put on there because, uh, you know, they were running it in the lowest load, easiest conditions. That's so the that's highest amp drop. UL Underwriters Underwriters Laboratory, laboratory yes. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, I, and that's I, the most common. I suspect as a global manufacturer, because your company sells this equipment all over the world, you not only have to meet what the standards are in the United States, but you would have mm -hmm. to meet the standards in Canada, in Europe, uh, Asia, wherever you sell your equipment. Isn't that correct? Yeah, and as Joe said, you know, it's our serial labels are the king of acronyms uh, because we've got all those things on there. You know, everything from you know your CE to your CUL to your UL, and you know, some of those are in foreign languages, so I won't even try to pronounce them. But it's important that those are on there. And and what, what was the second thing? I'm sorry, we didn't mean to cut into you. Said there were two things that the yes. consumer could do. Okay. The other that's real important in our industry is AHIM. And AHEM is the Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers. And this is another really good third-party certification or accreditation that is important, especially on two pieces of equipment. It's important on your dehumidifiers because there is a set standard for how the water removal, which is really the size of the dehumidifier, how that water removal is tested for and calculated. And also on your air scrubbers. You know, when you're looking at something for filtration and removing, you know, potential contaminants from the air, particles from the air, AHEM has a, a very set standard for how that is tested as well. Uh, now, here's the, the, the catch in as a consumer or as, you know, any interested party in the work being done, you want to make sure that the numbers just don't say, you know, an, an AHEM water removal next to the dehumidifier. You want to make sure the specs are AHEM certified. AHEM certified. What was that yes. acronym again, Brent? Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers. That's a new one for me. Even. Home yes. Appliance Manufacturers. We all learn on this show. All right. That's excellent. Well, what about, um, let's see, how, how is it, uh, can drying equipment be used also when we're looking at new construction and, and people were concerned about uh, whether or not the building's ready for finished materials. Absolutely. In fact, you know, the application of the standard equipment that we have in our industry and in new construction provides a lot of different benefits. But just primarily for the, the area that you've just hit on, ensuring that you're not trapping excess moisture in the building materials during the construction process adds a tremendous amount of benefit. 
A, you know, if, if you have a lot of structural components that are sitting outside, they're exposed to the elements, and especially, you know, in the, the Washington State area out here, our buildings get rained on a bit while they throw them up. You know, it's, it's a good idea to get rid of that moisture. You know, as, as we heard on the, with the first guest, you know, you really can't guarantee that you're not going to have a microbial problem if water exists. If you don't get that moisture out of those materials, they're going to start breaking down, degrading, and microbial growth mold growth is just a, a part of that mechanism. So you've got to get the moisture out of those materials. And we're actually, we're seeing a lot of, a lot of requests for information on that particular uh, area of construction here recently. What, when you say we have to determine that the moisture content, I'll use that fancy terminology, I guess, is appropriate. How do we make sure, that, I mean, I, is there equipment, special equipment that people will need? Do you bring in a third party? What do you recommend? Well, there are a couple of approaches there. I'll, I'll give you my recommendation, but also try to highlight the fact that you know, there's room for other ways to make it happen, too. You know, we have an industry out there of restoration contractors whom are trained and specialized in dealing with moisture in structural building materials that is not there because of a long, ongoing problem that just you have an excess amount of moisture, get rid of it, verify it's gone, and then move on. And they're very good at that. And I think that industry can serve the needs of the construction industry very well. So I don't know that it's a third party beyond the restoration contractor that's out there. You can call them the third party, if you will. Uh, but beyond that entity, I don't know that another third party is really necessary. Having said that, you know, there may be room for, you know, especially to give another benefit to the contractor building the structure and to the consumer purchasing the structure, there may be room for some sort of a certificate that says that this work has been done, the building was sealed up and closed up while it had the right amount of moisture. There may be some value in something like that. Whether that contractor provides that or not is you know, something that, that you could talk about. But there could be some value there to really add to the value of the home, just like we have, you know, green home, et cetera, some other things that are out there that add an additional value to the consumer purchasing the property. Now, does that moisture content, that does that vary by areas in the country? For instance, you're in a very, you know, damp area up in Washington. We get quite a bit of rain here in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. to, you know, is it different by areas of the country? I, I've heard that. I'm not sure if I um, know enough about the issue to say for sure that it is. There is going to be a variation depending on, you know, not only what state you're in, but even what part of the state you're in and what elevation you're at and et cetera and so on. Lots of things are going to influence the, the normal amount of moisture in a building material of, of virtually every type of building material, not just wood. So, yeah, that's going to vary. But the nice thing is, is that even though those numbers vary, the amount of moisture necessary to support you know, fungal growth and, and rot, et cetera, that information does not vary. You know, so there are still some numbers out there that if you truly understand, you know, measuring the amount of moisture, you've gone through that training, et cetera, there are some numbers that you can use almost across the board. You know, I've gone to your company's website and looked at the variety of things that you sell that go way beyond just dehumidifiers and air movement equipment. So I suppose dryies must think that there are some other things that are important for people to use. Could you comment on some of this additional equipment that should be used? Absolutely, Cliff. There, there's here. Kind of run through the whole range. These are the categories of types of equipment that are really critical 
to any drying contractor. Obviously, you've got dehumidification. You need something to control uh, humidity in a space. Then you've got air movement. And in air movement, you need to be able to apply the warm, dry air and the variety of surfaces and the variety of, of hidden cavities that we're going to encounter in structures. So there's a range of air movement that's necessary. Then, because you're blowing air everywhere and dusting a bunch of surfaces as you do it, you need to have the ability to control particulate and dust. You need filtration. You need to have not only filtration on your dehumidifiers to protect them, but filtration for the air and the structure to protect, to protect all of your other contents and occupants, depending on the, especially depending on the type of structure you're in. Then you must have an array of instrumentation. You need to be able to measure the effect of your drying equipment in that environment on humidities, on temperatures, and on moisture contents or moisture levels in materials. You've got to be able to measure all of that. So that must be there as well. Then you need to be able to remove water physically. As Joe had mentioned early in this uh, particular session, you have to be able to get rid of water in its liquid physical form. So you've got to have physical extraction devices. Then you have to have something to control microbial growth when it's necessary. You, know, you need to have antimicrobials, biocides. So a lot of different categories there of, of different tools and equipment that need to be available. Yeah, speaking of antimicrobials, uh, is it true that the plastic used to rotationally mold all drying equipment is the same? Absolutely not. Now, there's a, a few things that vary in the materials used uh, in rotational molding. It's the technical name for a process used to uh, create the plastic housings on the outside of your air movers and even on some dehumidifiers. Uh, there are a few things that vary. Most significantly, uh, though, plastic gives you the ability to put a lot of additives in place, things that you know, control the, the ability for the unit to continue looking good over a long period of time and also to help inhibit microbial growth. We actually put a, a microband product in our plastic housings as an example. I guess as a, to clarify, that's not the same microband product? No, it's a Is different that? company, but, so, you know, we, were, we, we saw the need and put the two people together and kind of threw rose petals at the wedding, but I didn't get a check <laughs> <laughs> from either one of them. Still waiting for his check, No, but I think that it was uh, a bold move that they made in terms of being able to, you know, raise the bar in the industry because this equipment goes into a lot of sensitive areas. It could be used in a hospital. It's not always clean between. It should be, but it, you know, it's not always cleaned. And I think it, it, it's a great opportunity to protect people's homes. Yeah, and that's that's one of the concerns that we have, you know, as as a contractor is you want to make sure you're bringing in to an environment a piece of equipment that that should be there and not bringing the last five jobs with you. Right. You know, so not that the antimicrobial in the housing in and of itself does all that work for you, but it, it helps. You know, it helps. You still need to maintain and clean your equipment, but the, any added measure is going to, it's just, it's further due diligence to make sure you're doing the right thing. Brandon, what do you think are the greatest areas where the industry needs improvement today in terms of practices that, that's a very, very open question with lots of answers, Cliff. Probably the most important response to that question. In terms of practices, I'll focus first on, on the guys actually in the field doing the work. We need more training and more education. You know, it doesn't matter what else we, we know in the industry. If we're not training our people on it, we're not practicing it, 
or not becoming proficient with it, then it doesn't turn into an industry strength. So training is critical. You know, people need to be making a routine effort in their in their own businesses, uh, from not only just from the restorer standpoint, but everybody involved in this industry. We need to continue our training and development. So that's probably number one. Uh, from there, you know, we'd mentioned a little bit of you know the specifications, the numbers on equipment. That's another real critical one. And let me just give you a real brief example on this. You know, if a manufacturer says that a piece of equipment removes 100 pints of water at an AHEM condition, but they never certify it. They just they take a, a pre-production unit that's optimized, and they find out what water they got out of it. They test it five times and take the biggest number and start publishing that. A restorer is going to go install that piece of equipment thinking that that's what he's getting from it. In reality, he's getting you know maybe 80 pints out of it of water, not 100. That's 20%. Imagine the, the effect of that extra water that's not being removed. Now, in turn, bill the insurance company for a dehumidifier that is removing 100 pints, and really it's only removing 80. You, know, you can think of all the implications that that has, and that's happening in the industry today. So that's an area you know, that, that I'm you know, taking some responsibility for there. We as manufacturers need to set a much better standard and precedence for the information that we publish in the industry because people count on having reliable information. And if they don't have it, then they can't make reliable decisions. Brendan, I've got a text message from a Jerry Walker of mm-hmm. New York City. He'd like to know, what is a desiccant? What is a desiccant? It's a good question. A desiccant dehumidifier, the easiest way to understand what that machine is, is it's a magnetic dehumidifier for moisture. It's using just some really easy to think of uh, analogies there. Instead of using a cold surface like a refrigerant dehumidifier does, like a soda can that's cold sitting on your counter on a hot, humid day, a refrigerant dehumidifier just condenses water on a cold surface. What a desiccant does is it uses, and here's a technical phrase here, but it uses a low chemical vapor pressure. Basically, it's like a magnet for moisture, and it attracts water to its surface. So you don't have to get something really cold and create condensation. Uh, The benefit behind that is that if you imagine a magnet going into a bucket of thumbtacks, it doesn't matter what else is going on. If there are thumbtacks in that bucket, the magnet's going to get a thumbtack out of that bucket. So a dehumidifier doesn't, a desiccant doesn't care how much water is in the air. No matter what, it's going to be pulling some moisture out of that air, which gives it the ability to operate in extremely low humidity conditions and still pull more water. You know, it's, it's like the, uh, the low gear, the compound low gear on a large truck. That's what a desiccant is. It's going to keep moving, not pulling massive amounts of water, but it's going to keep moving no matter how, how heavy the load is. It's always going to give you some performance. And are these, most homeowners, I'm assuming, do not, they purchase the refrigerant type. Is that accurate or? Absolutely. Okay. The, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little caveat on it. Most homeowners are going to purchase the refrigerant type, but believe it or not, one of the most common dehumidifiers purchased across the entire globe is is a kind of a variation on the desiccant dehumidifier. It's that little packet of silica gel you get with your shoes or a camera or a piece of electronics. That's a desiccant dehumidifier sitting in there, uh, that little tiny packet, uh, 
lot of people also buy those little uh, devices they put in their RVs, little plastic, uh, usually black, uh, that slowly collect moisture in a little tray underneath them. That's calcium chloride. Yeah. Yes, calcium chloride. It's a different kind of desiccant, uh, but it is a desiccant dehumidifier. If we were to ask you for a, uh, a, a trade secret, where, 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 could we pick up a little trade secret from you? We always like to try and pick the brains of the experts out there. I'll give you more than one. I'll give you lots. All right. Uh, two, two trade secrets, uh, places for trade secrets I'm going to give you. One, uh, we've got on our website, under our resources link, you can go into an archive of technical papers. Uh, we have you know, seven instructors now. We've had as many as 13 instructors on staff. We're the leading provider of education in the industry today. And every one of them has written a number of articles for the organization. Uh, you're drawing on more than 500 years total experience when you, when you sort through that, that list of, of articles. So go to our website and check out some of those articles. They're loaded with some great trade secrets. And then the other is that uh, we just uh, published a new book. The New Guide to Restorative Drying. And uh, some of the listeners may recognize that name because we published a book a number of years ago under a similar name. Uh, it's been updated. Uh, we've published it as current with new industry standards, uh, current with all the new technologies, covers everything from thermal imaging and, and, and the like all the way through to uh, you know, some of these new heat and air exchange drying systems. So everything current in the industry today is there. And that's the new guide to restorative drying just published we've, this year. We've got one here that you were kind enough to send us, which we really appreciate. And I noticed that in the back of it, there's a disc. Can you tell me about this disc? Yeah. Uh, we, well, I personally and, and a, uh, a gentleman from a local university developed an, a Microsoft Excel template. All right, Microsoft Excel, I'm going to give you my quick short story with Excel. You know, I hate doing math personally. I, I do not enjoy math. You hate I it, know. I can't do it. <laughs> well, you know, Cliff, we may be able to use you as a better example then. <laughs> but, you know, I hate doing math, but the, the, here's the reality of business. In business, you've got to crunch some numbers. You just have to. Well, Excel loves to do math. So my short formula is I love Microsoft Excel because it does the math for me. You know, with anything that you've got to do to track numbers, track data, Excel will always be able to do it better. So what I did is I sat down and I put some information together in Microsoft Excel, set up the, the formats, the templates, made it look pretty, so that you put in a couple of numbers, and Microsoft Excel does all the documentation and calculation for you. We call it Restoration Project Manager. It manages a number of different types of data from the job. Uh, we've had uh, a lot of our instructors here all contribute pieces to this, like uh, you know, Darren Hudima, for example, and some other instructors. Uh, but it has a component that will track your overall job costs, your, elect your electrical consumption, the equipment used, the moisture contents in your materials over time. It will graph all the information out so that you can hand it to the adjuster and say, you know, look at the pretty picture, down is good and see that we were going down the whole time. makes a great communication tool uh, and a great record-keeping tool. Something you'll be proud to take the court if you ever had to go there, which is always my measure of effectiveness in documentation. You know, when you're done documenting a job, would you be proud taking that to court? Because someday you might have to. Okay, so that's what's on the CD. that's also available on your website, through the website? It is not, actually. Oh. Uh, the, we only offer that program. We used to only offer it if you came to us for our four-day uh, hands-on water damage school, which cost you a thousand bucks. So now we also offer it if you purchase the book for only one fifty. Okay, and how do we? How do they get the book? 
Uh, they go through a local distributor. Uh, we have uh, 140-ish distributors across the United States. We have distributors in Europe, uh, the UK, Australia, Canada, uh, even in uh, Germany. So we have distributors all over the place. Just contact your distributor, whoever you buy your dry use equipment from, and ask for the new guide to restorative drying. Yeah, it's, a, it's an outstanding book. It's, it's a hardback book. Uh, it's got what seems like hundreds and hundreds of photographs and very, very well done. It, it seems like quite an investment of time, energy, and money uh, was put into this book. While we still have you here, Brandon, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Did you have something you wanted to add? Uh, myself? No. I, I was just going to say, yeah, that we're, we're pretty proud of it. All it right. Us, uh, it took us a little better than a year. I, I wanted to check and see if um, Dr. Wow is still on the line there. Uh, <coughs> I'm we still here. Okay, Dieter, uh, welcome <coughs> back. We always like to check in with our technical expert here. You mentioned research. Oh, I research. learned a lot of things. <laughs> Any, uh, anything you'd like to comment on or ask a question about, Dieter? Uh, no, well, not really. I mean, um, I, I learned a couple of things that I didn't, and as you did. <laughs> yes, we all did. And, um, you know, there are, uh, how should I say, you know, in the old days, water and fire restoration was a dirty job. There's a heck of a lot of science behind it. And as it was pointed out, it behooves you to know about those things, apply um, proven techniques and and engineering principles to the overall job. And if you do that, well, then you are as successful as uh, PDG and the people who know about it and uh, do it. Very Absolutely. Good. Well, thank you, Dieter. And before we, uh, before we leave, we always have our last few questions we'd like to ask Brandon. First of all, any tips for consumers who may be listening? We've already hit a few, but uh, maybe you have something else that we could give to our consumer listeners. Yeah, most important tip that I would leave behind for the listeners is you know, a little little quote that I from John Wooden that I love to share with students in classrooms and it's just uh, just everybody needs to remember that it's what you learn after you know it all that really counts. <laughs> yeah. Boy, isn't that a good I may have to live your life it. by it. Can I borrow that? <laughs> Absolutely. I borrowed it from John Wooden, so. Okay, it's what you learn. Okay, we'll get that on the uh, recorded version here now. Is there anything we missed that you would like to add? No, you know, we really hit on probably some of the most significant uh, things going on in the industry today between education and, and, and reliable information from manufacturers, you know, a lot of the real hot things in our industry today. So uh, I don't think so. I think we covered it all very well. How can our listeners contact you and contact your company? Uh, I'll give you the same information that, uh, that Sean had given. You know, the best thing to do is probably go to our website at www.dryeaz.com. And all of my contact information is there. All of our other instructors' contact information is there. Uh, it's a great place to go if, you're, if you've got a technical question as well because so we've got a, a really good uh, resource library there. I like that use of the terminology hyphen. I've, I've hyphen. always used dash. I'll be coming. We'll work on that, Brandon. I'll have to fix that on the next uh, spot we do. Yeah, it sounds a little more fancy. Yeah, it does, and uh, I, it certainly sounds like uh, we know what we're talking about. <laughs> I'm going to be Cliff hyphen Slotnick from now on. Cliff <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great having you on the show, and uh, hopefully we'll we'll bring you back again sometime to talk a little bit more about drying and products for drying and I'm sure you also get into other 
types of uh, products as well. And um, absolutely, we didn't get a chance to talk about those today, but we'll love to have you back. Thanks well, thank again, you, Brandon. Joe. Thank you, Cliff. I enjoyed it. Thank you very Super much. Great. Bye bye. Okay. So before we go, we'd just like to let our listeners know that next week we will be we're we're going to try something different here. We have uh, Cliff and the cyber jockey CJ here will be in the studio. I will be at the Indoor Air Quality Association convention in Nashville, Tennessee, and we are going to try and bring you several, maybe three or four guests that will be at that convention live from the convention. So that should be an interesting uh, attempt there next week. I think we can pull it off here. And what I'd like to do before we sign off is once again thank our sponsors from today, uh, the Microband Trivia Question, microbandsystems.com, the Dry Ease folks, Dry Ease Products at dri-eaz.com, and of course IE Connections, the newspaper for the indoor air quality industry at ieconnections.com. I also want to thank my co-host Cliff Slotnick, and our technical assistant, Cyber Jockey, Zach Slotnick. And most importantly, I want to thank you, our growing group, actually, of loyal listeners. We have been uh, getting some very nice numbers in. And uh, please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.